Well, many of you know, I think, that uh, I began my time here at Chapel Street, formerly First Baptist of Geneva, uh, in 1986 as a youth pastor. It seems like a different lifetime now, but during those seven and a half years that I served in student ministries, I was constantly looking for you know, creative ways to help students learn something about faith. And sometimes we'd play games, and if the game was fun and it that taught them something, uh, that was even better. And one of the games I remember trying several times involved uh, having a blindfolded student try to navigate their way through a maze that we set up uh, to get some sort of prize. I'd ask for a volunteer. When I was, once I got a volunteer, I'd put a blindfold on them, and then we'd set up a maze of uh, tables and chairs, whatever we could find in whatever room we were in. Um, and at the end of the maze, uh, there'd be a prize, like a candy bar or bag of Skittles or something like that. And then we'd take the rest of the students, maybe 30 students, maybe 50 students, and surround the entire maze. And their job was to yell instructions to the student that was blindfolded about how to get through the maze. But their main job is to try to confuse the student, try to get them lost in the maze. And then I would select one student, and only one out of the entire group, who was assigned to always say the right way to go, to tell them the right way to get to the prize. Just one student. The rest of them are yelling all sorts of different things. And when you play the game, it will always descend into total chaos. Um, but I learned something in the process. First, uh, if the student uh, chosen to always tell the truth was a friend of the student who's blindfolded, they could usually start to hear that voice of all the other voices. And they would find their way to the, to the prize. If they didn't know the person who was telling the truth, it was much, much harder for them to find their way through the maze, and usually uh, they would get lost and confused. And that's a bit about what this letter, um, what this series we're studying now is all about. We're in a series called Colossians, the Fullness of God. And over the last couple of weeks, we've said that the Apostle Paul here is writing a letter to the young church in the city called Colossae. Uh, he's heard great things about them from Epaphras, who was the founding pastor, leader of that church, but he also knows that they're going through a time of confusion uh, by the voices of their culture around them, and in particular, a uh, confusing philosophy that we now know as the Gnostic heresy or Gnosticism, and there were other things going on as well. So he writes this extraordinary letter, uh, and if you've been trying to read it on your own, you know how extraordinary it is, to let them know that he's praying for them and that he wants to encourage them to hold fast to what he calls the true message of the gospel. And to remind them that Jesus is above all things, is preeminent over all things. So I want you to join with me once again in reciting the key verse that we have here for our whole series. Just say it with me as I read along, okay? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul is making it abundantly clear who Jesus is, and then he goes on to explain what Jesus has done, how he has reconciled all things through his body on the cross to God. He says, you who were alienated 
have been reconciled and are now blameless and holy before God. So Paul wants the church in Colossae to know which voice of all the voices in their culture they can trust and follow. Now today we're going to take another step through the text. We're going to look at Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24, reading through chapter 2, verse 5. So let me read through this entire text, and then we're kind of going to go back and break it down into, into pieces. Beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Laodicea was a sister town just about 10 miles away from Colossae uh, in the same Lycus River Valley and dealing with a lot of the same issues they were so close by. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, I, that's only like two sentences in the, in the Greek. You can see what I mean by it's like drinking from a fire hose. And he just continues on. But there are three things I want to pull out of this, uh, uh, this text. First, the ministry of Christ. And then the mystery of Christ. And finally, maturity in Christ. Let's begin with the ministry of Christ. Uh, last summer, um, I was invited to travel to uh, a couple of places. But the first stop was Dubai in the Middle East to participate in a gathering of church planters from all over Asia, Africa, and um, the Middle East. And you'll see this is the hotel room that we met in. You can kind of see there what the room looked like. There's about, there were about 250 church leaders from around that part of the world. Um, they were from places like Africa. Uh, these are four, let's see, one, two, three, yeah, four African pastors. There were places from, like places from uh, like Togo and Liberia, Congo, Mali, Ghana, uh, places in the Middle East like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Azerbaijan, places in Asia like Vietnam, Indonesia, Myanmar, all, from all over that part of the world. Uh, this guy here is um, the leader of all church planting with the Timothy Initiative in Pakistan. His name is Salim, and I still get text messages from him uh, once a month or so about the work going on in Pakistan. But most of these people uh, were from places where it's not only difficult to be a follower of Jesus, but it's also dangerous. At one point in one of the mornings, we were there for like three days, and every morning began with a large group time of worship and then a speaker. One of the presenters stopped in the middle of a talk and asked a question. A question I don't think I'd ever heard asked here in our culture. The question was, how many of you have been arrested, imprisoned, or beaten for the sake of the gospel? That was the question. Hands went up all over that room. 
My hand, however, did not go up. I've never been asked to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I was actually asked at, at that conference to lead a breakout session on leadership in pastoral ministry. Never been uh, felt, never felt so inadequate and humbled in, in anything because my sense was, even while I was trying to present, that it was I who needed to learn from them, not they who needed to learn from me. But verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now what sufferings is he talking about? Paul here is toward the end of his ministry. He's in Rome. He's in prison awaiting trial. Uh, By this time in his life, he's been arrested multiple times, three times beaten with sticks, five times flogged with the 39 lashes, and 40 lashes were supposed to kill a man. He was stoned once and left for dead, not to mention being shipwrecked at least three times, bitten by a snake, and gone without food. Paul knew what suffering was. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known here. A couple of things. First, Paul says he is a minister. Now that word um, just means servant, uh, literally one who serves at a table like a waiter. So that's how Paul describes himself. And then he describes his ministry in two main ways. First, the ministry of sufferings. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister. A couple questions here. First, how can Paul rejoice in his sufferings? That is... um, That doesn't make really any sense in our North American culture. How does one rejoice in sufferings? Well, I think we see here through other things Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings, and they were many, because he knows his sufferings point to the ministry of Christ's suffering on our behalf. In fact, all suffering can serve to remind us that Jesus suffered in his body to reconcile us to God. Paul sees his own suffering as a ministry that represents the suffering of Jesus and points toward the ultimate reconciliation of all things, the redemption of all things. But there's a second question here. When Paul says he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, what does he mean? Does he mean that somehow the cross was not sufficient? Now, some of you may have lived a portion of your lives under the teaching of the doctrine of purgatory. The Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory basically says that those who die in God's grace but are yet imperfectly purified must undergo after death a process of purification called purgatory. Quote, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. In other words, that doctrine teaches that the cross of Jesus was not quite sufficient to atone for all sin, that there's still more purification needed. And that's not what Paul is teaching here. The Bible does not teach that doctrine. Christ's suffering and death on the cross were entirely complete. Nothing can be added. Nothing need be added. Paul has already said this back in verse 22 when he writes, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Not 
partly holy, not mostly holy, not to be completed later, but holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Peter says it this way, For Christ also suffered once, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Christ's suffering and death was final. Jesus said it is finished. Nothing needs to be added. So what does Paul mean by that which is lacking? Now, most biblical interpreters, at least that I uh, read, uh, think he's referring to the cause of his own suffering. And that is the job at hand. The great task of making the gospel known in the Gentile or pagan world. So what's lacking is not the work of Christ, which has been finished, but the communication of that work, Paul's understanding of his own calling to take the gospel into the whole world. As Martin Luther once said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times over if no one ever heard about it. So Paul rejoices in his suffering because he knows that suffering is making Christ known. Here's how he says it in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Secondly, we see he describes his ministry as the ministry of the word. Look again at verses 24 and 25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, the church, that is, I'm taking the gospel to the whole world, risking the suffering because it's worth it, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul's ministry is from God and for the Colossians, and I think thereby for us, to make the word of God fully known, to teach, proclaim the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Makes me think back to the, my time, those couple days in Dubai, around those, those, those godly men and women, these brothers and sisters in Christ, who knew something that I did not know. And what they knew was the intersection of the ministry of suffering and the ministry of the Word. The intersection of the ministry of suffering and the ministry of the Word. There's something, the gospel is always powerful, but when the gospel is preached from a place of suffering, it becomes more powerful. And that was what I experienced in those few days with those dear brothers and sisters. So the first thing we see is the ministry of Christ. The second thing we see here is the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Now, if I asked you to uh, list the great mysteries of the world, uh, what would make your list? Would you think of a place like Stonehenge? Anybody here been to Stonehenge? Seen it? Oh, look at that. Wow, I've never been. I'd love to go. Uh, maybe so you know more about this than I do. But this weird arrangement of ancient stones is in southern England. It dates from about 3,000 years before Christ, so about 5,000 years ago. And each one of those giant stones weighs about 25 tons. Think 10 minivans, all right? What was it for? An ancient burial site? Was it a giant astronomical calendar? And the great mystery is who built it? 
How did they move those giant stones? Was it ancient druids? Aliens? Some people think it was aliens. Or how about this? How about the Nazca lines in Peru? Have you seen these? Do you know what this is about? Uh, these are uh, huge and intricate patterns called geoglyphs carved into the ground in the stylized shape of animals and insects. Like this is an image of a hummingbird. But it can only be seen. It's, it's a half a mile across and over half a mile long. You can only see the image if you're in the air in an airplane or on a nearby mountain. So why are they there? They're 500 years before Christ. That's how they date from. And you can see, still see them carved in the ground. Who made them? How did they make them? How did they make them so perfect? Again, was it aliens? We don't know. Or how about this guy? <laughs> Some say that's Bigfoot. I don't know. To me, if you look closely, it looks like either Pastor Andrew or Pastor Jeff in a gorilla suit. <laughs> I hope Jeff never listens to my sermons. I don't know. <laughs> and of course, the ultimate mystery, which is why can't the Bears ever find a quarterback? You know? <laughs> now, maybe they found one now. Um, Justin Fields is maybe going to be that guy. And by the way, um, I have a personal friend from years ago who's one of his physical trainers and says he's a fine, fine Christian young man. So we're rooting for Justin Fields and the Bears. Paul says in verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given for me to you, to me, for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now Paul uses this word mystery three times in the text we're looking at today in the whole passage. And we tend to think of mystery as something we can't know. We just don't know the answer to it. And that is the, the, the meaning of the word Paul uses, but he, he, he bends it just slightly. The word he uses means uh, a mystery that we can know and can understand, but only if it's revealed to us by someone else. Remember, the issue Paul is addressing here in this letter, at least in part, is this whole issue of the Gnostic heresy, the Gnostic philosophers. And they were teaching that spiritual enlightenment... That is to know the fullness of the divine being, which they called the pleroma in Greek, came from special knowledge, from mysteries and wisdom that only the Gnostic philosophers possessed. Now Paul repeatedly uses their language to point to and talk about Christ. He says three things about what he calls the mystery. First, the mystery was once hidden, but is now revealed. That is what every human civilization has searched for, what every human being has longed for and tried to know. That is, where do we come from? Why are we here? Is there a God? What is that God like? Has been made clear. Has been revealed. Secondly, he says that mystery is Christ himself. He says the mystery made known among the Gentiles is Christ in you the hope of glory. So how do human beings know the fullness of God? By acquiring special philosophical knowledge and theological knowledge? No. Rather, through the good news of Jesus, that in Him dwells all the fullness of God, and that He has made that fullness available to us through His cross by reconciling us to God. And therefore, we have the hope 
of glory. This is the mystery of what we would call the indwelling Christ. Listen to how Paul describes this mystery in his letter to the Ephesian church. He writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The mystery that the Gnostics proclaimed that they possessed is not secret, but rather revealed, made clear in Christ. And thirdly, he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations God chose to make known, and we can miss this little phrase, among the Gentiles. For Paul, it would have been the pagan world. Uh, this was a shocking and radical thought in Paul's time, because at that time, almost universally, beliefs about God, small g, and religion were almost entirely culturally bound. That is, the Greeks had their gods, the Romans had their gods, the Jews had their god. But now Paul says the gospel of Jesus is for all. It's for all, for everyone. Did you know that today there are three times as many Christians in Africa as there are in North America and Europe combined? Did you know that 80% of the Christians in the world today live in South America Africa, and Asia. 80%. The average follower of Jesus in the world today is a woman of color. The gospel is for all. The greatest mystery, then, is that no matter how far you've been from God, no matter what your cultural background, no matter what your religious or ethnic background, no matter how long you live without knowing or believing in Him, Jesus has reconciled you to God. I think that's the greatest mystery. How could he do that for me? Reminds me of Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be? Maybe you know it in your, in your mind and heart. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? So we've seen the ministry of Christ, the mystery of Christ. Thirdly, we see here the maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So here Paul makes clear the purpose of this letter, to proclaim Christ. We've seen him do that in, in beautiful, flowing avalanche of language. Uh, he, he wants to um, warn everyone about the dangers of false teaching, and then he wants to teach for maturity. He wants to present them mature. But notice, three times Paul uses another word we can miss, and it's the word, word everyone. Warning everyone, teaching everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Not just the intellectually elite who could learn the secret knowledge of the Gnostic philosophers, not just those with special knowledge, not just with those with Jewish religious roots, everyone, even Gentiles, 
Again, in Paul's world, that would, the, would have been the pagan world in Paul's mind. Even us, even you. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. I think we see something really beautiful here. I, mean, I, want, I want to point it out. We know that Paul has never visited Colossae in person. He's never met them face to face. But listen to his passion for them. He says, for this I toil. The word means to work to the point of exhaustion. Then he says, struggling. The word in Greek is agonizomai, from which we get our word agonize. It's an athletic and military term referring to wrestling against or striving against an enemy. I think Paul here is describing how he prays for the church in Colossae. A place he's never been. I was thinking to myself, do, do we know what that kind of prayer is like? Do, do you know what it's like to pray like that? I think maybe the closest thing I could come up with was how, if you have children, how a parent prays for their child when you know they're struggling or wrestling, or especially if you know they're, they're far from God. How you wrestle and strive. You wake up at night and you pray for them. You fight for them in prayer. Paul prays like that for a church he's never visited in person. I think there's something beautiful about that. So what's he fighting for? That he may present everyone mature in Christ. Mature means fully grown. Listen to how Paul describes this maturity. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible or fine-sounding philosophies or arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am present with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. So what does it mean to be mature, full-grown? In Christ. Paul gives us two markers. There are others throughout his other letters, but two markers here. First, community. Community says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. I think we have a tendency in our American culture, uh, our self-sufficient, sort of individualistic American culture, to think of spiritual maturity as something we move toward, you know, kind of alone. You know, we get our Bible and our notebook and our cup of coffee, and we sit in our favorite place, and, you know, we kind of mature alone. That would have been foreign thinking to Paul. Those are good things, but would have not been the way Paul thought about it. He's saying that spiritual growth happens in community. Our hearts are encouraged as we're knit together in love. And I think a lot of times we have a tendency to take this for granted, to take what is happening right here, what's happening when we gather together in all various forms of our ministries and programs, that we take it for granted because we're so used to it. That to belong to a family that's knit together in love has the encouraging power to bring us toward maturity in Christ. Again, back in Dubai, when I was there just three days, surrounded by these men and women from different parts of the world, I didn't know them, they didn't know me. We couldn't even speak each other's language most of the time, but there was a, there was a bonding, a, a knitting together that you could feel because I wasn't used to it. It was different. 
But it was powerful. There was great encouragement. Paul is saying we don't grow toward maturity in isolation, but rather in relationship with others in the body. Then the second mark of maturity is what he calls confidence. The riches of full assurance. Confidence. Paul is saying the best way to keep from being confused by all the voices of culture, from being deluded by plausible philosophical arguments, and there are so many out there today, is to simply know who Jesus is and what he's done. Here's how he writes to the Ephesian church again. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. Now, it's important to say here that our confidence, our full assurance, doesn't mean we don't ever have questions. We were talking in preaching team the other day, and Pastor Jeff said something like, uh, the older I get, the more I study Scripture, the more questions I find myself asking about, about faith, about the Scripture, about the interface with culture. But he said, the more certain I am about the center of my faith. I think that's true. Confidence, full assurance, doesn't mean we understand everything about the Bible or everything about faith. It doesn't depend on getting an A in theology class. It doesn't come from knowing the secrets of spiritual truths. It comes from knowing who Jesus is and trusting that he dwells in you by his Spirit and that he is enough. So what does that process of maturity look like? One of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament is in Philippians. Again, the words of Paul. He writes, not that I have already obtained all this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider myself, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, who are fully grown, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul sees salvation as the great gift of God's grace through Jesus. We have been reconciled through his blood. This is the gospel. And if you've never had uh, sort of the gospel explained in its fullness in a nutshell, let me try to do that right now. The moment you put your faith in Christ, whether that was 40 years ago or whether that's today, you receive, according to Scripture, four things. A new heart through the forgiveness of sin. A new identity. You are now in Christ, Paul says. You belong to him. He tells you who you are. You receive new purpose. The Bible says you've been created in Christ for good works, to serve together in the church and in our neighborhoods and in the world. And you receive a new destiny. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul says. Now these are promises. This is the mystery of being in Christ and of Christ being in you. It's what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. But here's the thing. Paul is also saying that while we receive these gifts by faith, we also grow up into these promises through the process of maturity which is a lifelong, intentional, sustained effort 
that he refers to as straining, pressing on. I've mentioned uh, over the last few weeks that our son and daughter-in-law, one of our sons and daughters-in-law, um, and their two little girls have been living up with us for about five months now as they look for a new home in Batavia. And so we've had this sort of front row seat to the daily and relentless work of parenting. And those two little girls are loved. I know that for sure. They're so loved by their parents. But they also need to learn and grow. So they're learning to obey mommy and daddy. They're learning to trust, not only that mommy and daddy love them, but to trust their words and their instructions, that they're good and true. They're learning to say please and thank you. They're learning not to put food in their hair or in their nose. They're learning how to share. They're learning that Jesus loves them. They're learning how to pray. And they're being shaped day by day through the teaching, gentle correction, and consistent discipline of their parents. And the goal, of course, is what? Maturity. And the same thing is true for us. That's what Jesus wants to do in each one of us by his Spirit. I was listening to a sermon this past week by Pastor uh, Louis Giglio, pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta, and he offered this just three-line summary of the entire book of Colossians. It's a little simple, but listen to these three phrases. He said, the whole book of Colossians is, Jesus is everything. Jesus is in me. Jesus is changing everything. Jesus is everything. Jesus is in me, and he's changing everything. Paul says that's the ministry of Christ, that's the mystery of Christ, and that's maturity in Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word, this ancient letter that's so contemporary in so many ways. We thank you for Paul's powerful reminder that everything we need, everything we long for, everything that matters most is no longer a mystery, but is found in you. Enable us, teach us by your spirit to grow to grow in our knowledge of you, to grow in maturity, and to grow in full assurance. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now today's benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may your hearts be encouraged. May we be knit together in love. And may we know the riches of full assurance, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. Have a great day.